Paul Daly, welcome back to the Business of Betting podcast. Jake, great to be back and uh, thank you very much for taking the time out to uh, have me on. You're welcome. It's been, I just said, it's May 2017 was the last time we spoke. You were one of the very first to come on to the the podcast and back then it was probably a very big risk in your career to, to chat on a podcast which was pretty new and, and now it's uh, it's fun to, to come back around three years later and, and dig into some uh, more betting topics, more horse racing. You've uh, done a lot in that time and we'll get stuck into some of that now. Yeah, well, great. Um, Jake, I mean, I'm looking forward to it. And look, some of the content you've produced over the last few years is astounding and heard from people that uh, I didn't even know existed in the, in the various industries. And uh, some of the guests you've obviously had back for a second time. It's good. To, it's a good refresh. Absolutely. So tell us what, what's what been happening the last couple of years. I know uh, we talked a fair bit about the, the database uh, ratings to win and, and what was going on there. Has that evolved much over the years? I'm guessing it has. Tell us some of the high-level points that people might be interested in hearing. Well, look, there's been a lot of growth in terms of the, the features and functionality that we continue to invest and put into the database. And obviously, clients get that benefit at, at no extra cost. But uh, those ideas, um, thankfully, come from not only clients, but ourselves in terms of our long-range planning and what we've wanted to do. Uh, there's been some industry first features that we've certainly included, um, which we obviously take advantage of. And that just continues. And that's really, I suppose, the the, the mantra that we've tried to live by from from the start. And that is have a small, you know, quality client base that you, you can interact with and, and get to know and, uh, you know, continue to bounce ideas and get fed, you know, uh, ideas on development. And I suppose now our program schedule is still you know, about 18 months into the future. So I spoke to James Willoughby a little bit about data and I think um, total performance data as well about what they're doing. And it's an interesting topic because it's often one that gets raised, sectional times especially, and how that information is disseminated within the industry, especially in a wagering context. Just tell us from your point of view and perspective, uh, what's that world like when it comes to what you're trying to do and obviously downstream to the to the audience that you have and the the people that are using that information to bet is it a fragmented and fractured system as it sounds like or are there things that we're missing in this discussion look i think it is um, fragmented in the sense that you've got different providers offering um, different data um, there is no one constant uh, you, you tend to pay a lot of money to get to get quality data and um, look, I think that punters overall often have tools at their disposal that they don't really understand. So it's all very well saying, well, I've got all these sectional times to play with, but you've got to know how to interpret the data and um, gain an edge from it. And and really, if you're not doing something different to what everyone else is doing, then you, you're really going to um, not see any advance or advancement in your own betting in, in terms of profitability and, and whatnot as a result. So... For us, I mean, having things like all the, all the wides at every 200-metre point um, for every race in Australia and Hong Kong and uh, knowing whether or not they're with cover or no cover, and that includes country racing, you know, that that's, can certainly be data that's useful for punters and time-saving uh, as well as, you know, margins from 
leader at every 200 metre point throughout the racing, including some early speed data. Uh, so that you know that that obviously goes back into things like speed maps and whatnot. So when you're analysing a meeting post race, you can take advantage of having that data in front of you and you know ascertaining things like bias and you know whether or not there's particular lanes that are better or worse, or uh, whether horses outperformed relative to their their price uh, and whatnot. And so that's that's an important part of you know the ratings process and and gaining an edge over and above you know just what collateral ratings might offer. Where do times rank in the hierarchy of importance? And maybe it's evolved, but from your clients and what you're doing, is it in the top, you know, couple and without sectional times that are accurate, you're you're way behind, or is it something that it varies by by punter? Look, look from my point of view, selfishly, I think it's great that the industry doesn't actually do much with sectional times, uh, insofar as you know the the timing equipment. Uh, used is is different uh, depending on which area you go to. Uh, a lot of the systems aren't well maintained. They're not very accurate um, for for the most part. So there's obviously a marketplace for accurate sectional times, and that's been filled by various players uh, in in different uh, formats. But uh, you know, for me personally, I mean, times and sectionals are a huge part of the equation. I mean, we all started off with with basically weight ratings as they were back in the the Scott era. And, and uh, for a long time there, people tended to factor, you know, weight ratings over and above times because the timing availability just wasn't there. But, you know, going back even into the 80s and 90s when there were a number of professional teams or individual punters who actually had staff, you know, recording times and filming barrier trials and, and clocking them and getting the advantage from it, a lot of that's obviously disappeared. But, you know, when I'm rating a race and doing what I call the back form, which is essentially assigning a race quality figure to races that have been run uh, in order to uh, uh, create a, a historical rating for each horse's performance. You know, the times and sectionals are a very important part of that process. What do you think the the wagering space especially would look like if we had sectional times gathered properly and accurately and disseminated widely, even something in the typical newspaper form, the best bets form, or online, you know, free form that that widely covered that, and and some of the things you're talking about was freely available, where you can talk about cover, no cover, lanes, and then these types of things. Well, uh, you can provide the information, but as I sort of tried to allude to before, you've got to know what to do with it, and and if you can't actually take that data and and create a um, an offshoot that's going to be a value add to whatever model or process you you're using to create your your market estimates in the first place, uh, then I, I don't really see the the point. I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that you see on different websites and average times and average speeds and all that sort of stuff. Um, it doesn't really mean much uh, unless you've uh, got a, an understanding of what it is that you're actually looking for and what you're trying to do with what you get a hold of. I mean, certainly it would benefit the industry, I think, as a whole, um, but there are lots of other, you know, things that, I think we need to sort of resolve uh, in a betting sense uh, and as an industry in order for the industry to continue to prosper in Australia. Have you found the market catching up to some horses that you might find based on some sectional time related interpretations? And I remember talking to Dean Evans about it when he was talking about trials and back in the day he was saying, you know, he would find one of the trials and it might be 40s and he was the only one in the world that knew about it potentially or one of very, very few 
is sectional timing like that where you might find one that you love and it might be $6 and you're the only one backing it? Or is it now where, you know, there might be a handful of people and instead of starting $6, it might be, you know, three fifty, and it might get bet into, uh, you know, in the twos, for example? I was going to say that, you know, your five to one chance of 15 years ago might be five to two today. Um, so a lot of that value um, in horse racing has, has, has left us. But, you know, there are different ways to skin the cat and you've got to continue to revisit what you're doing and, you know, look at the inputs that you're, that you're presented with. And, and, and it's not so much that the fundamentals have changed, it's the weighting of all the variables that, that changes and the market, you know, uh, continues to refine and get smarter and obviously price things more accurately in one area, but then perhaps, you know, expose a, a hole somewhere else. Um, Dean's a great judge and, you know, he uses our database uh, as a result of, you know, trying to, I suppose, produce his trial service um, and to isolate those horses that have done very well. And look, trials is really an art and you've got to be a specialist at it, I think, to to do well. And that's what he does. Um, but, uh, you know, that that's just one area that you can, I suppose, apply yourself to to get benefit. Um, there are lots of others, you know, specialization in, in particular geographical areas uh, and horse pills is another. Paul, what drives you to, to do all this? We can talk about the betting. We can talk about the database and, you know, you're talking about programming 18 months ahead. You've probably got well thought out plans and, and devised ways to make sure all your clients are happy long into the future and uh, Hong Kong and all the other things we're going to talk about today and we have previously. But what drives you to continue keeping up all these different aspects and, and why not specialize on one, for example? Well, personally, I do uh, or try to. Um, I mean, the Australian market is, is you know, a great product and it, it needs to be sort of obviously worked on in order to maintain it. There, there's lots of problems in all markets and all products that you see uh, on offer, but you've got to sort of zoom in on, on what you're passionate about and what you love doing. And being a very exact person by nature, uh, the puzzle and the challenge, I suppose, is what continues to motivate me. I've, my work ethic has always been very high. Um, I would probably most days spend no less than maybe 14 hours uh, doing what I love. And uh, as long as I continue to enjoy it, I'll keep doing it. And I can't see that that's going to uh, reduce anytime soon. So let's talk a little bit about the betting side. Obviously, the landscape is shifting or has anyway over the last 18, 24 months, certainly since we last spoke. How does it impact your world? Obviously, it it may come in different shapes and sizes given what you're touching. But just from an Australian racing point of view first, how do you see it? Is it is it generally trending in one direction? Is it something that really has an impact or are you still able to navigate it pretty easily? Okay, so personally... Uh up until recently when, when COVID hit, uh, I was actually, I live in Brisbane. I was flying to Sydney twice a week and spending time there and back in Brisbane, sort of splitting my time, I suppose, equally and betting in the, the ring down there because of the attraction of the competitive markets in Sydney on offer and also the fact that rails bookmakers have to bet you larger limits than what you can obtain through minimum bet laws. Um, so it's it's practice that a rails bookmaker in Sydney has to bet you to lose five thousand on a Saturday, and uh, you've got you know a few outer bookmakers or paddock bookmakers that bet you to lose a couple of thousand. But of course, you can have more than one bite of the cherry, which is a problem 
that punters um, have when they're betting with corporates. You can tend to only back the horse once. Um, the prices that you're betting into are, aren't competitive. I mean, the markets are sort of structured, you know, in that 130% range uh, quite often. And uh, that obviously makes it very difficult for a punter to get any value. Um, the, the problem is that you don't have a, a cohesive minimum bet law strategy that's being embraced by all of the principal racing authorities. I mean, we've still got WA without any minimum bet laws. Uh, you've got uh, different states with different amounts. Um, for example, if you're betting on Brisbane racing and you go to the racetrack, you can, uh, the bookmakers can actually restrict you to win $500, um, which is you know, ridiculous when you think about it. So you know, there's been a lot of work done by people like Richard Irvine and, and uh, you know, I suppose as punters, we've, we've got to thank him for what he's done and the service he's, he's, he's put in over the years in making sure that that continues to be stimulated. But the problem is you've got all these different agendas from principal racing authorities. You've got the uh, the tote market uh, gradually consolidating. We've had the takeover of, of um, UBET in Queensland by Tabcorp. So we've got Tabcorp Queensland now. Uh, there's, there's lots of talk about a national pool, but there's obviously some obstacles with respect to that. And plus you, you pretty much have an uncompetitive tote product as it is. Um, new bet types haven't sort of delivered on some of their promises and what they've hoped for in, in terms of, uh, you know, things like racing New South Wales odds and evens and whatnot. I mean, that's been, a you know, an abject failure. So I, I think the things to go forward, I mean, you know, punters have obviously got to keep um, fighting the fight and you've got to have operators, you know, in Australia, I suppose you've got the likes of Top Sport who are very competitive uh, and, you know, at least trying to give punters a go. And um, you've got Bet Easy leaving the marketplace. And so you've had consolidation amongst the corporate ranks. And so it continues to get tougher. And the avenues for punters uh, aren't what they once were. It strikes me as problematic that a resident of, of Queensland, let's say, needs to head down to Sydney to uh, be able to essentially operate a business. And obviously, you're looking pretty closely and heavily at Hong Kong as well. And if Racing Queensland were to address this topic, how do you think they would feel or what What do you think they would say if uh, one of their residents has to basically get on a plane twice a week and also look internationally for a viable option for them? Well, look, I, I've, I've sat down with um, previous management of Brisbane Race Club, for instance. In fact, with, with a CEO or previous CEO who basically said that, you know, that they don't care about punters. They're more interested in selling alcohol and, and the party atmosphere. That's where they make the money and the gambling is not really their, their, their focus. Um, when you've got people that think like that running racing clubs, you know, what hope is there? Uh, the fact that, you know, they were able to introduce a minimum bet law of, uh, to win $500 on, a, on, on course for a bookmaker in any state it's pathetic. I mean, that it's just it's it's inconceivable that anyone can think that that's good for racing. Um, you don't actually have people in those positions focused on wagering or or even aware, perhaps, of you know what what's actually required in a wagering sense to to promote the good of the sport and the industry as a whole. And so, I think that there has to be some drastic changes in in regard to that. But, you know, to answer your question, I don't think Brisbane Racing or anyone involved in Brisbane Racing would care that, you know, someone has to actually travel to another state to bet. Um, they're not interested. 
What has COVID presented? And obviously, you know, there's plenty of discussion about the impact of COVID, but what about opportunities? Has it changed the wagering pools at all? Has it had an impact in your mind when you are betting, you know, in the Sydney ring, for example, or when you are betting online? Has it had additional coverage that might be positive and, and things like that? Well, I mean, for me personally, I've, I've moved uh, my betting into a different space and we're going to talk about that. Um, I, I'm still betting in Australia on, on an automated basis uh, for much smaller money. Um, so it's a, it's a sort of a turnover and low margin model, uh, which is not ideal and not, not really what I wanted to do, but it's become necessary. Um, look, I think for some people like, you know, in play traders, they've probably seen some advantage as a result of, you know, crowds not being at the racetrack and sort of, you know, seen more error or uh, more opportunity in those markets. How long that lasts for, I don't know. Uh, there's obviously a, a cost to all of this in terms of the COVID business. I mean, you know, we saw it at EI in Australia, you know, produced um, a scenario whereby, you know, a lot of punters were lost to the industry or if you don't, if you like the punters who used to go to the track were lost to the industry post-EI and, um, you know, there's some much smarter people than me have sort of suggested that it's going to be similar this time around and um, there's really not that many more people to go. Yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about Hong Kong and I guess from the outset, why Hong Kong? What was the impetus? Why was it a requirement? Like we talked about a little bit before, being a Queensland resident, uh, take us through some of the, the thought process to get to the ability to, to pull the trigger, essentially. Well, look, I mean, you know, a brief history summary is that uh, I intended doing something like this a number of years ago, and I, I worked in conjunction with um, a few guys, and we looked at doing something in respect of Hong Kong, and uh, when it came time to pull the trigger, their, their, their capital... Um, requirements or requirements to inject capital had changed and they had other financial commitments that, that were more important. So that didn't really go anywhere at the time. Um, I, I traded uh, the most part of the 16, 17 season myself with very limited success. I'm, I made, you know, truthfully about 0.8 or 1%, which was certainly nothing to write home about. But what I did learn during that time was the differences in the Hong Kong structure of racing and uh you know the fact that you've actually got to do form differently and and weight things differently um, to be able to bet successfully into that hong kong market but the attractiveness of the huge pools and and obviously the liquidity and and the rebates and, and other things that you know obviously you know the, there are lots of punters who who fit that space and, and betting syndicates and groups and whatnot um the lure of that was obviously um something that I couldn't resist. So tell me what took place post that season you just mentioned, for example, to today. What type of diligence were you doing? Were you looking into, you know, the previous history of Hong Kong? Were you looking into Bill Benter and, and Alan Woods? Or were you looking more recently? Were you looking at purely your own results and your own trading and your own form process, for example? Tell us what it takes to transition from back then to now so that you can uh, basically have more success. Well, we started building the Hong Kong database um, around about 2009-10. So that's the, the seedlings, if you like, of where we are now. Um, at the time, we didn't really know why we were collecting this data. Other than we had a vague idea that we'd like to do something with it one day. So 
we continue to obviously collect and correct and and verify that data as we went along uh, and you know gradually added new aspects and new components to it um, to to what we have today so um, the, the database journey in, in the context of Hong Kong was sort of a story in itself. Um, what I started with was really just, a, I suppose, you know, the fact that we've got a, some races here and this is what the class system is and this is what the basics are uh, about Hong Kong. Obviously, a, a smaller pool of horses was, was attractive um, from a modelling point of view, um, you know, limited jockeys, limited trainers, you know, limited tracks, um, a very structured uh, handicapping system and a merit-based handicapping system uh, was was attractive from my point of view. And so it was just a matter of, you know, figuring out, you know, how this puzzle actually works. And in order to do that, there's uh, uh, there's lessons that can be learnt and those lessons uh, are well learnt when you actually risk some of your own capital in doing so. So um, that was a process, I suppose, that we go through or we went through and since then of course it's it's evolved um i walked out of rose hill was coolmore stakes day i think the last meeting when COVID happened and uh and that was it i sort of sat back and thought well what am i going to do and it didn't take me long to sort of put uh, put the hong kong priority if you like at the top of the list and and just make a firm commitment to do something about it how difficult have you found it to essentially reprogram your thinking about racing to apply it properly to Hong Kong because it's it's something that is often really difficult and especially uh, you know the curse of having decades of experience in in a country or a jurisdiction isn't always great when you need to be adaptable and agile for a different jurisdiction was that something you struggled with or was that something that took some time and even just a very simple example I remember when People would say that you know it's better to have an outside gate in a in a thousand meter race, for example, because if you have some speed, you can you know cross the field pretty easily. It was always growing up that you know best to have gate one, two, three, four in any race, and just reprogramming your mind in in certain situations can be challenging. What was it like for you in this aspect? Well, look, uh, a couple of things about what you're saying there. You're right. I mean, having um, prior knowledge, as it were, in terms of the process of doing form on Australian racing is actually a handicap in itself when you go to Hong Kong. Um, there's certain things that you can take from it, sure, but uh, I think that there is a lot to be said for someone, you know, starting out from scratch and spending the time and, and learning the ropes, as it were, which takes, you know, several years to get right. And, and I don't think you ever actually stop learning. I mean, even to this day, I'm still researching angles and, you know, looking at different aspects of, of what I do and always, if you like, analysing my betting performance post-meeting and looking at what I did well and what I didn't do so well and what can I, what, what I can improve upon. But I think that that's what any successful punter does. Um, for me, I suppose it wasn't – the opportunity was a bit different insofar as I wasn't trying to build a, um, you know, mathematical model that would operate on, you know, high volume and, and uh, you know, controlling my losses and just picking up a rebate. It was more about I want to do this well. I want to, you know, do the form as well as I possibly can. So it's a very manual process that still takes, you know, maybe an hour and a half, two hours a race to do it properly on average. Um, you've got obviously a certain controlled number of races, which is an advantage. But, uh, you know, doing the form well is the priority. And I suppose not only are your results important, but, you know, your final prices in terms of where the market ends up 
the what you think that they're going to do. Can you share a little bit about your thoughts on the rebates as they apply to Hong Kong and just how it impacts your thinking? And obviously with a, you know, being a fund manager of sorts, let's say it's obviously a topic you need to address and, and consider. You, you touched on a little bit about those that might be looking for a strategy of avoiding the potholes, break-even betting and, and collecting rebates is potentially one aspect or, or one path to go down. Tell us about some of the history of rebates, how it impacted your thought process and what ultimately you decided to do. Well, look, the, and I'm only talking about Hong Kong here. I mean, the betting markets in Hong Kong, based on some research that I've done, showed that, that you know, from the 80s onwards, horse racing revenue in Hong Kong grew exponentially. Uh, it was a very fluid market, uh, obviously not what it is today, but... Uh, Post the handover uh, of Hong Kong um, from British rule and the Asian financial crisis, which was about 97, I think, um, the revenue from horse racing started to decline. Now, that was in concert a few years later, uh, or several years later, when the uh, jockey club actually was granted a licence to, to, if you like, bookmake on football. And the revenue from that saw, uh, you know, some of that money being redistributed into football and the the racing itself declining. I mean, there was also the lottery business or is the lottery business that they have there as part of that um, turnover. But that's sort of a fairly constant from what I understand. So, you know, horse racing started to show signs of, uh, of regression in terms of the uh, revenue that they were getting from the turnover and the Hong Kong club. Uh, decided to introduce a rebate scheme uh, in or about 2006. And uh, that sort of arrested the problem. Historically, when we look back uh, through the looking glass, that has arrested the problem. And the market has grown from what it was at the time, which was probably around about 60 or $70 billion a year in, in turnover to, you know, well over 120-odd billion um, back in the, uh, I think, 17-18 season. I don't have the latest figures, but... It's certainly shown to be successful, uh, and I believe that something similar in Australian racing could work, but it would require the cooperation of all the principal racing authorities and tabs and whatnot in order to make it work. And I think that that is in itself uh, the problem that will prevent it happening. Um, but that 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 was the attraction, I suppose, is is learning about the rebates and understanding what it all meant and how some of these models operated. And obviously I did research on uh, Benter and Woods and whatnot and sort of um, got a bit of an idea of how they were operating. But that seems to be what the marketplace is in Hong Kong. It's largely set by the mathematicians. You know, they, they're really just trying to control their losses. They're not actually trying to be a net winner before the rebate. So rebates is often a negative term. It's something that potentially might be market to market, it sounds like. From a Hong Kong perspective, it sounds like you believe it might have been net positive for the overall marketplace from a betting landscape perspective. Well, it absolutely has been. If you look at the success of what the club's done in terms of arresting the decline in turnover, um, interestingly, though, those those rebates, Jake, are available to anyone betting on um, Hong Kong Jockey Club um, tote pools. Um, the only condition is the you know the the, the minimum bet that's required uh, before you actually access the rebate. So it's 
it's not a rebate, you know, for some, but not all. It's a rebate for all. Yeah, interesting. And I, I think that's certainly an interesting topic because there's plenty of discussions and we even touched on it briefly earlier with the Australian landscape and even other parts of the world with how they arrest what's going on with, uh, you know, the global nature of betting and just yourself, you know, being a resident of Queensland, heading down to Sydney to bet in the ring, uh, obviously focusing on Hong Kong. Just in that short example there, you can see how, you know, the distribution of wagering funds is being dispersed in different jurisdictions. And that obviously is, you know, if I was an administrator, which I certainly am not, would be something I'd be worried about, especially if someone, you know, on my doorstep is, is finding ways to get out of my jurisdiction. Well, yeah, I mean, and the answer, the industry's answer to that was um, in part the introduction of the um, Interactive Gaming Act where, you know, they were trying to prevent the flow of funds out of Australian sports betting um, and racing to to illegal offshore operators. And so they uh, obviously introduced that legislation as one of the measures that they hoped would would prevent um, that uh, that from flourishing, and, and I suppose it has had an effect. But you know, realistically, that's not the problem. The problem is in, in inherently internal, and they need to do something about the system. The system's broken. Yeah, it strikes me as you know, on the back foot and being defensive. You know, fighting off those operators that are potentially attractive for anyone in a jurisdiction to go offshore or look internationally and if you just keep being defensive and and fighting off then ultimately someone's probably going to defeat you at some point or uh, if not it's going to be a slow death but just uh, in terms of Hong Kong what does it take to get something like this off the ground it strikes me as there's a lot of admin there's a lot of effort a lot of work a lot of things to think through a lot of I'm guessing a lot of things have popped up along the way that you might not have expected from the outset. Were there any major obstacles or hurdles to get it done or have overall you found it to be a, uh, a task worth uh, you know, going through the process on and getting off the ground? Well, look, from my own point of view, I suppose um, it grew out of necessity because you know, there's a, a certain percentage of my rebate, uh, sorry, my betting that is you know, rebatable as it were now. Um, but a lot of it that's not simply because of the fact that you've got to achieve that that minimum loss target, as it were, on a ticket uh, to be able to qualify for the rebate. So my thinking behind this was to say, well, you know, if we do this, then I'm able to effectively increase the percentage of my own bets um, that qualify for the rebate. And, and And that's obviously an important financial consideration. And it goes into the makeup of, of if you like, revenue. Um, that's that's achieved from betting. So, yeah, it was important to to uh, to make that one of the priorities. But not just for myself, but somehow bring this together for a small group of other players, as it were, uh, to benefit from. And so, it made sense that we, you know, we put together a, essentially a, an unregistered managed investment scheme. Um, uh, and obviously, there's legal hurdles and whatnot that that have to be overcome. In doing all of that, and we sought legal advice, and um, in fact have um, uh, have uh, my lawyer as, as one of the participants, as it were, in all of this. And uh, yeah, there was a fair bit of admin and, and hard work and pushing to to get things done. But what we're trying to do, I suppose, Jake, is put together a bit of an interactive experience for 
for the people involved so that they know what all the bets are before the race. They get to cheer them home. There's full disclosure. There's full transparency. Um, uh, and effectively, our, our success is aligned because of my own personal involvement in the trade fund itself, uh, in as so much as I've, I've invested considerable amounts of money myself to ensure that it is successful. So you haven't gone down the typical hedge fund path of 1% or 2% of net, net assets and 15 20% of profits? No, 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 it's, it's, it's different to that. I mean, I, I, as it stands as of today, I mean, there's been a couple of things that, that the Jockey Club have announced, like the increase in rebates that will apply to Quinella and Quinella place bets um, in the new season, which is obviously great for, for anyone uh, that participates and plays in that space. Um, you know, for us, we, we also achieved the, the milestone of, you know, what I was hoping to achieve. We, we, we put together a million-dollar pool, um, which will be uh, employed and or deployed, as it were, uh, at the start of the new season. Um, the, the people that we've got involved are, are people that I know and are clients of my own and um, associates that I deal with and, and obviously people close to um, the ratings to win brand. And so, uh, yeah, we've, we've pretty much, I suppose, well and truly overachieved what we wanted to see at this point in time. So we're all closed, you know, we're full. Um, in terms of the opportunity, uh, you know, we're excited by it. We've completed or virtually completed uh, the building of an app, which will essentially deliver the information to the players in real time prior to the race um, so that they're fully involved in, in the outcomes. And the, the reporting, as I said, you know, flows into that as being one of the, I suppose, in, important details of, of knowing that, you know, this is what we're all doing and this is what we're all working towards. So, uh, yes, the, the, the rubber, if you like, for us is that we get a management fee out of profits, um, but that management fee is quite reasonable and, and uh, quite low compared to maybe some other operators in the marketplace. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's not about so much making money from this as a trade fund. It's more about uh, the fact that, you know, the majority of our bets will then qualify for this rebate. Yeah, and I think it says a lot that you are in the fund yourself. You have the skin in the game to steal a term from Taleb and it'll be um, you'll be riding the ups and downs as much as anyone. Just Just to follow up on what you were talking about there, tell us about the appetite from your target investors, the target audience. It sounds like it was really positive, which may be a surprise given the world as it is today. But overall, is it something that people want to have exposure to in general, the Hong Kong markets? I think so. And, and look, I, I went in thinking, well, you know, we, our, our target was to, to reach a group of 20 people, excluding myself. Um, as a director, I'm not counted in the, in the, in the requirement. Uh, for the uh, exemptions that we're looking for under the Corporations Act. But essentially, uh, you know, we had a $25,000 Australian buy-in minimum. Um, I always anticipated that I'd put in at least two fifty dollars into the fund, uh, which I did uh, to begin with, but it grew very quickly. And really, in the space of maybe five or six days, um, it was pretty much full in terms of the numbers. And we've had some top-ups from existing clients that, have decided to increase their their involvement, um, not only as a result of today's announcement, but uh, just in terms of you know perhaps their initial um, commitments that they'd made, you know, were, were had some flexibility in them, and they've been able to see themselves 
towards um, increasing that. So, look, I mean, we couldn't have hoped for a better start. Tell us a little about the application of your betting strategy. You don't have to go into detail in what the strategy actually is, but more so about uh, how actually it'll operate. And obviously people who, and I've been following from afar, but I think Betfair dabbled in Hong Kong for a brief moment. What's the What are the options available to you? How do you have to think about setting it up? Are there any obstacles in that process and in that approach? Or is it relatively simple on the, the betting execution side to get it all done? Look, we have our own in-house trading platform as such that allows us to um, get, gather you know, um, data from the pools and uh, price information that is obviously then used uh, in conjunction with some math to to ascertain you know where the the value bets lie in in the actual pools as we see them, we're betting very late into the the actual um, betting of of a race, so it might be that you know we're betting right down to the minute mark or so, and those bets are then obviously put into the tote pools. Or we're targeting mainly uh, quinella pools. Uh, that's the largest pool in Hong Kong, and there's there's a fair degree of, of of recreational money that sits in those pools, and perhaps that's the reason why they are so much a target of some of these bigger syndicates. Um, look, I, I think the wind pool in Hong Kong is very pure. There's not a lot of price bias, uh, as you would get say in an Australian market, you know, on long shots. So um, there's probably you know not a huge value in 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 the actual wind pool itself. Uh, as it were, but um, certainly, you know, there are there are fixed odds avenues that some of the bookmakers in Australia offer, uh, the corporates and whatnot, and um, you know, uh, we're uh, we're doing some work in that space to try and shore up some uh, the ability for the fund to trade with with one of these corporates to, for a certain minimum, so that we can at least uh, you know target some of the value in some of the early prices that they offer, which are uh, obviously incorrect in terms of you know where the SPs end up so more generally have you found that or what what type of uh, efficiency do you find in Hong Kong in the prices in the overall starting prices compared to somewhere like Australia and I guess some of the nuance you've talked about with uh, potentially syndicates looking at it from a different perspective trying to just sort of break even betting and and maybe have a different thought process and approach whereas other markets that may not be the same given the rebate structure and the overall pool structure. Have you found Hong Kong to be pretty spot on when it comes to the, the prices and the pools or is there room to move when it comes to the efficiency? Well, look, the, the efficiency of the Hong Kong market is something I first looked at um, probably around 2012. And uh, I found even then there was very little, um, if you like, error in the final prices in the wind pools. In Australia, you know, people may or may not know that, you know, there's a fair degree of price bias or favourite long shot bias, as we would call it, that exists in the actual final prices. Uh, look, the SP is still a great guide, but, you know, for people backing long shots, you know, your 10 to 1 might be a 14 to 1 chance and your 25 to 1 might be a 40 or 50 to 1 chance and whatnot, you know, but your fifty chance is pretty much bang on a dollar fifty. So uh, there's obviously advantages for punters who are playing at the pointier end of the market in Australia, that's still pretty much an underbet space um, for whatever reason. But in Hong Kong, it's different. You know, the prices are, are pretty accurate. And um, some recent research that I've done on the market there 
really shows that what I did back in 2012 hasn't changed all that much. Um, uh, there's certainly been some movement in some of the other pools, uh, which I probably won't go into too much detail on. Uh, but, you know, that in itself is the advantage. Do you think longer term Hong Kong could be a, a primary market for you as opposed to, to betting into the Australian markets? Or is this something you're going to assess as you go and see what evolves? Oh, look, I think with everything, Jake, you've got to take it as it comes. But look, I mean, Hong Kong have, have grown their market, you know, year on year for quite some time now. And it, it certainly is the, the domain for some of the biggest teams, the computer teams in horse racing to bet in. There are obviously other markets that, you know, we're looking at exploring and um, perhaps, you know, in time we can do that. But, you know, for now, I'm very passionate about what I'm doing with Hong Kong uh, in terms of the, the form that I'm doing there and and the results that we're getting. So, um, you know, for me at this stage, I can't see that that changing in the short term at least. So I wanted to ask you very generally about new entrants coming to, to betting markets in racing especially and certainly in Australia. Given you have uh, different touch points within the industry and, and your finger on the pulse, tell me a little bit about, you know, 20-something-year-olds coming into racing, what avenue they can take to get involved. Um, they don't necessarily need to start day one and jump in and, and subscribe to a database necessarily, but... What are the what are the avenues that do exist? Because you know I talk to a lot of people in the industry, and and oftentimes uh, it's not you know a twenty four year old that's dedicating a lot of their time to horse racing and and wagering pools. Do you see any growth in that area, or is it as it sounds? And it it may not be something that we're going to see, and there might be a bit of a gulf in that in that range or age range, I should say. Look, I, I think that that's where we'd like to see some growth in Australia, but you know, perhaps the boat sailed somewhat already um, in with regards to a lot of those players. I mean, there are obviously new people coming into the space and, you know, we're doing our best as an industry, I suppose, and to attract them, there's certainly a lot of information available. Uh, there wasn't much available when I started out and it was pretty much, you know, buy Don Scott's book and read and learn and read and learn and, and practice and, and do things yourself and, um, you know, try out different things and, uh, perhaps uh, you know, look go onto some of the websites, look at some of the racing services that are available uh, to learn from. I mean, we've got people like Mark Lamborn who operate Racing Rant, who's very much got a Sydney focus, but there's some great you know lessons to be learnt there, and some great information that they provide. Um, you know, for punters wanting to enter the space, uh, I think that if I had to give myself some advice. As a as a young twenty something year old now, looking back, I'd you know I'd uh, certainly be targeting a lot of the information and education that's available, you know, through podcasts like yours, Jake, and 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 others that are on the market. Um, listen to as much as you can, read as much as you can, and research as much as you can. And uh, if you're not prepared to sort of uh, commit, you know, a decent chunk of whatever spare time you've got, then you know I think you're going to find it tough to. Uh, to survive. I mean, uh, the market's moved very much towards a, a tipster style model uh, where people, you know, all over Twitter and social media and whatnot are, are offering tips for sale um, and whatnot. And uh, I think that that's probably got a limited lifespan myself. But 
look, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a challenge and it's hard to know exactly what to do, but that's probably what I'd recommend any young person wanting to enter the industry do is, you know, read as much as you can, learn, ask questions, uh, subscribe to some of these services, learn yourself, do things yourself, make mistakes and and just commit to it as, as a long-term project. I mean, it, it's, it's certainly a, a an industry that provides great challenges for, for all involved. What is the information sharing like between people in your networks? Is it only those that are, you know, close friends, for example, that will share different things with you? Because obviously you mentioned Mark and, and what he's done over the years has certainly clearly helped uh, a lot of people. And even I think I spoke to Darren Potter about his story and he had spent a lot of time watching the old punters show and all the way through to racing ran and now, you know, does what he does. Is there, is there a lot of information available if you're willing to ask and you're willing to listen, or is it still something that is closely guarded and, and people might not be willing to, to spurt out all the great ideas that they have? No, not at all. I mean, I think there's lots of information out there and there's a very willing um, cohort of people you know, offering information up and sharing information of all sorts. Um, you know, as I said, on social media and through other various media forms, podcasts and whatnot. So, you know, I think, you know, what what probably took me maybe 10 years to learn, nowadays you could probably learn in two. So there's certainly some advantages in, in starting out now. Um, I, I know myself, I've taken on a number of um projects or proteges if you like and in terms of clients of ratings to win and the database and so forth and worked with a number of clients and been able to you know either turn their betting around into something that's more profitable or certainly turn them from losing punters into winning punters and, and that's part of what my journey that I've enjoyed doing and continue to do uh, with, with um, some you know good long-term clients that have been with us from the start who uh, who are very committed in not only supporting our brand um but uh you know uh, helping other people as well along the way you know people as i said like mark lamborn and darren potter and, and dean evans and and whatnot i mean these these are just some of the names that are out there there's just so many now yeah absolutely there's a lot of great information if you if you are willing to search so tell us can we follow along through the app uh and see how the results go and and things like that or is that closed to those participants and maybe we have to wait until next time yeah, look, I mean, we certainly intend to put some performance figures up um, after the fund uh, ceases. I mean, each fund goes for 23 weeks in duration, so essentially half the season. Um, no, but the bets and and the live data that people will be getting is is obviously to to uh, players only um, for for a number of reasons. But uh, so uh, yeah, we'll we'll be keeping that to ourselves in the short term. But certainly, as the results start to flow. Um, you know, we'll uh, we'll post that, and uh, that'll be available for all to see who who, who are interested. Um, existing players who are in this fund will obviously get first right of refusal on on the next, and and we'll just take it one at a time for now, and and see how we go. And who knows, there there could be some growth in this space as well. Yeah, absolutely. And I think this fund is called Hoi Sheng, or I've probably butchered that, but I think it means to win. So hopefully that's the result, yes. and uh, hopefully that's what. That's what we're aiming for, Jake. And hopefully bigger and better next time and next time and then onwards and upwards. Indeed, indeed. And and look, at the end of the day, I mean, we've, we've put some budget numbers together and we we, we think overall they're pretty conservative and uh, and achievable. Um, but look, I mean, you know, people have got to remember this is 
like any form of investment or, or, or risk taking or gambling, you know, there's obviously always going to be some variance and um, average returns are indeed average and uh, they uh, sometimes take time to materialize. Indeed. Paul, thank you very much for your time. It's always a pleasure chatting. Hopefully it's not three years until we get to do this again. Indeed. Thanks very much, Jake. And uh, once again, I think it's terrific what you're doing and keep up the great work. 